Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This edition examines the outlook for investors and markets after the pandemic. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. While the pandemic has brought havoc to many aspects of our daily lives and plunged the world into recession, stock markets have regained most of the ground lost since March, while bond prices continue to rise. Joining me today to discuss the conundrum are Gerald Lyons, Senior Economic Advisor at NetWealth, Ian Heslop, Head of Strategy for Systematic Equities at Jupiter Asset Management, and Nathan Sweeney, Multi-Manager, Fund Manager at Architas. Thank you all for joining me. Given the extraordinary monetary policies being pursued by governments around the world, Ian, is it possible to price risk in the current climate? Markets are often described as being at historic highs. But in a world where the discount rate is at historic lows, are traditional measures such as that actually valid? Well, uh, thanks very much, David, for the opportunity to speak. I think um, we have a couple of issues at the moment which probably are clouding a little bit how valuation normally forecasts. One of the things I would kind of point out immediately is that just because kind of value spreads are wide um, doesn't necessarily lead to value performance. It just tells you the value hasn't worked for an extended period of time. But I think when we look at kind of uh, how markets are, are pricing uh, the idea of value at the moment, there's a couple of things I think you can really point to. The first is, is obviously the, the idea of intangibles and the impact that intangibles, intangibles are having on 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 uh, on earnings and and the second I think the more important thing the thing that really is causing us issues is the fact that interest rates are so low that when you look at long duration assets and the disc- and discount rate that you're using for long duration assets so assets that are that have earnings over many years and perhaps are not backed by huge amounts of assets currently these long duration assets look inherently cheap when when interest rates are extremely low. So if you're using an asset-based valuation metric, which is just using something to price, like book to price, inherently it's not going to capture that type of um, good type of forecast growth, which is discounted at low interest rates and hence looks cheap to investors. I think that's the main issue, really. Thank you. Nathan, uh, when you're allocating to to funds, how, how do you – I suppose there are, there are growth funds out there which essentially um, price assets as – long duration assets and price off future discount rates um, or as Ian mentioned you can take a more value-based approach but what does that really mean in a world with all of this uncertainty and exceptional monetary policy when you're trying to unpack yeah. it, Nathan how, how does that all how does that all unwrap for you yeah so you know I think you've raised a couple of important points so I think this largely depends on what kind of investor you are so it's definitely more difficult to assess markets if you're looking at fundamental data or traditional measures alone. So as an example, if you look at markets on a price to earnings basis, uh, then markets currently look expensive relative to history. But if you think about uh, price earnings at this moment in time, that data is very skewed because the market looks expensive because earnings have just collapsed. However, Uh, Share prices haven't fallen to the same extent to reflect this loss of earnings. And this is because investors expect to see a quick recovery in earnings due to the unique nature of this recession. 
so it's largely expected that uh, this recession uh, reverses uh, quite quickly uh, because you've had very strong intervention from central banks. Um, so I think this is uh, quite an important point uh, when looking at this. Um, I think it's also, you know, you, you touched on interest rates there. So it's very important to point out that interest rates are now obviously much lower than they have been historically. Uh, and, you know, they are expected to remain relatively low, which provides a good backdrop for growth companies. Uh, because if you do get a pickup in growth and rates are low, that should uh, be able to push valuations to higher levels than we see today. And another thing that investors have to consider is that from investing in asset classes like equities, and you look at equities relative to other asset classes, equities look uh, like they offer better value. Um, and so this, I think, will be an additional consideration uh, for investors at this point. Thank you. Gerd, uh, at, at NetWealth, how do you, um, how, how do you view markets right now? And, and how does the monetary policy environment that we have now interact with how you look at company and market fundamentals? Okay, well, it's great a pleasure to be here. R rather than echoing what Ian and Nathan have said, let me approach the question um, from a macro perspective, because I think if one looks at it in that respect, there's three issues in terms of the question whether markets have been good at pricing for risk. And one is that um, ahead of the global financial crisis over a decade ago, it was clear then in an environment of low interest rates that markets then were not pricing properly for risk. And if anything, that's been exacerbated since as interest rates fell lower. So that low interest rate environment naturally makes it more difficult. Then on top of that, the second issue is um, the pandemic hit hard and no one was really anticipating it. And when one looks at global risk assessment, it's quite interesting that it's very difficult for markets to really know how to price these small probability high impact events. There are global risk assessments annually and indeed, what was interesting was that after SARS in 2003, pandemics, as well as chronic illnesses, actually figured as the most important risk in the eyes of people who filled in those risk assessments and key players in the market. Then post the global financial crisis, it became financial risks and more recently climate risks that have come to the fore and pandemics went right to the bottom of the list. Um, so how will we, in the wake of this crisis, factor in these small probability high impact events? And that's a big challenge for anyone looking at markets. But the third factor is the one that Nathan touched on, is that um, in an environment where policy has played such a key role, and in essence, we have unconventional monetary policies, and we're probably moving to unconventional fiscal policies as well, that really impacts the markets in all sorts of ways that naturally makes it even more difficult for markets to price for risk. So markets have not priced for risk well ahead of this crisis. And in an environment of low interest rates and unconventional policies, it may be difficult for markets for some time to price properly for risk. Thank you. And Jared, just to follow up on, on those points, you mentioned we have unconventional monetary policy, um, but actually we've had I suppose we've had that policy now for more than a more than a decade in terms of having quantitative easing, bond buybacks, very low interest rates. What lessons can investors take uh, for the decade ahead 
from the deck that we had, I suppose, from the global financial crisis until February of this year, about the way markets performed, about the way QE impacts? Yeah, in terms of the lessons from a policy perspective impact on markets, uh, we've gone from monetary policy being the shock absorber after the global financial crisis to now fiscal policy being the shock absorber as a result of this global pandemic. Now, markets therefore need to factor in two features. One, the future trend, not only of monetary policy, but probably more immediately, what does the aftermath of global debt levels at all-time record highs implied. Last week, the International Monetary Fund pointed out that public debt globally had never been higher. Of course, here in the UK, we've had a number of times post-wars when government debt levels have peaked at higher levels. Now, we're in a unique situation where a combination of low inflation, low interest rates, and low yields means that governments don't have to implement austerity or take draconian action immediately. So the question is whether markets can live with that high borrowing. And if we start to see stronger growth, then debt to GDP levels naturally come down. But a key factor as to how that plays out for markets, and particularly for bond markets, will be inflation, whether inflation comes back or maybe we'll talk about this in the second, or whether for the moment it continues to remain low. But maybe just to finish the question, one of the lessons from the last decade is that once you've gone down the path of policy easing, previously monetary policy and now monetary and fiscal policy, it becomes very difficult for central banks or governments to reverse quickly or indeed easily that policy easing. It's much more difficult and also takes a longer period of time to go down the path of policy tightening. So when it comes to monetary policy, the question will be whether central banks opt for raising rates first or whether they opt for quantitative tightening, reversing their quantitative easing first. Last week, the Bank of England reversed its previous stance. Previously, under Mark Carney, it had suggested they would move to tighten gradually via rates and then quantitative tightening. Now the current governor has suggested that they will go down the path of quantitative tightening, possibly too soon in my view, followed by rates rising later. So it's a combination of different factors that we need to take into account, David. Thank you. Uh, Nathan, uh, you're just about old enough, I think, to have been in the market a decade ago. What did you learn in that decade that you're going to take into the one coming up? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of good points raised there. And, you know, so monetary policy has definitely been a key driver. And, you know, it's going to feature again in the next decade. So if we just think about central banks, how they've changed over the last decade. Um, if you think about 2007, the great financial crisis, obviously post the great financial crisis, it took central banks quite a long period of time before they implemented quantitative easing. So, you know, it was almost a couple of years before they actually acted uh, in the marketplace. Whereas if you look at what happened recently, it only took a couple of weeks before you saw intervention. So central banks have definitely changed the way that they react. And that reaction time has definitely increased. So what I expect to see going forward is I expect to see fast moving support of central banks. And one of the things that that will help do is that will help to shorten the time of a recession uh, because they're stepping in and they're helping businesses throughout these uh, obviously difficult periods. 
just to give you a, a kind of an example uh, with regard to the response rate this time around, uh, during the great financial crisis, when the Fed was buying bonds, um, you know, in the marketplace, they were buying 120 billion of bonds a month, you know, which is a big, big number. But to put that into context, this time around, they were buying 50 billion a day. So, you know, central banks, the way that they operate has definitely changed over the last decade, and I expect that to continue as we move forward. We also touched upon fiscal stimulus. Now, fiscal stimulus has been something that a lot of people have been crying out for uh, to try and help achieve growth targets, to increase that growth uh, in economies around the globe. And governments have been very lackluster in coming forward with fiscal stimulus. But what this event has done, uh, COVID, this crisis, is basically paving the way for more infrastructure projects. Um, what we're seeing in the US at the moment is that the US is on the cusp of announcing a one trillion infrastructure package to drive growth. Uh, so they are currently reviewing uh, their infrastructure program and it's up for renewal in September. And it seems as if there's a lot of support uh, in the US to implement uh, fiscal stimulus. And normally what will happen is if the US kind of goes down that path, you'll see lots of other countries getting involved too. And this could be really important in driving growth over the next decade. The last takeaway that I would take from uh, markets over the last decade is just the dynamics of the market, the way the market trades. So the market is now today highly automated, uh, which means that you know, it's very much rules-based. And this has led to faster corrections, quicker recoveries, higher daily upside, uh, more downside, so in periods of volatility. So I expect those uh, program trades to react faster to news flow, and these will exacerbate price movements on the way up and the way down. And, you know, this makes it a lot more difficult to time markets. And one of the takeaways from this recent episode, and which caught a lot of people off guard, was how quickly markets recovered. People didn't expect that because when they looked at past recessions, those past recessions, when you saw those drawdown in markets, it took a long time for markets to recover. So it's, it's, a, new, it's a new dynamic to consider. Thank you. Ian, I know your, your investment process is, is less focused on the macro, um, but you've definitely been around for the last decade, I'm sure. Um, and I'm sure you can, <laughs> your process means you can look under the bonus of markets a little bit more. Um, so having looked under the bonus of markets and looked at a lot of technical uh, information over the past uh, decade, what, what signal is that sending you for, for the decade ahead? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with uh, Gerald and Nathan to, to a large degree that, um, from the perspective of looking at kind of fiscal and monetary policy going forward, one of the things that we do know from the last sort of 10 years is is the impact of, uh, of monetary policy uh, lessens um, as you move through time. So QE1 had a greater impact in QE2 than had a greater impact in QE3. Now, I know they're throwing the kitchen sink at it at the moment, uh, but I think I agree that fiscal policy needs to take more of the, more of the hard labor um, as we move forward. One of the things I think as I look back over the last 10 years, one of the, the, the real kind of obvious points about markets is the, the level of liquidity that we've had within equity markets, um, which obviously has bled across from, from the idea of reflation um, post-08. Uh, post we've seen material amounts of asset price inflation across the board. And you can see that 
in in all the assets that you can invest in equities bonds i think nathan was saying you know that the, the valuation argument for for equities is that it's it's not as expensive as other assets that you can invest in and that's absolutely true um but i think the the, the real kind of argument that, that we have going forward is is how much of this asset price inflation is likely to continue as we move forward with a similar level of kind of liquidity uh, pumping that uh, central banks are likely to do. One of the things that kind of that leads to, um, certainly as you look at markets, the, the, the use of kind of um, ETFs to invest, um, a lot of that liquidity over the last 10 years has, has been caught up with the kind of explosion of ETFs uh, and the explosion of kind of index investing. and. As part of index investing, and, and, and I'm in no way arguing for or against index investing, active and index investing have places in, in portfolios. Um, ultimately, index investing does tend to exacerbate momentum trading to a degree because obviously larger stocks within an index tend to get larger amounts of the capital pie. Um, that will lead to the, the types of momentum trading that we have seen over the last sort of 10 years. Yes, structural growth has been a winner over the last period and value has been a bit of a loser. But if you think about how that actually plays through the idea of, of ultimately liquidity, the idea of supply and demand at a stock level, the idea that actually kind of demand has been almost excessively exacerbated by the liquidity argument, we have to find a home for this liquidity somewhere. Then that does lead to where who's been the biggest winners over the last ten years, and to a degree, it's been ETF investors. Ultimately, that's going to lead to uh, a continuation in this argument for momentum trading that we've seen uh, over the last few years. It leads to a an issue where stocks are trading away from fundamentals. So you know, when when you see broad movements away from underlying fundamentals, that type of momentum market inherently is being driven, in my view based upon the idea of, of liquidity. Um, I think the final kind of take home that I would I would take away from the last 10 years, if you think about one of the asset allocation uh, trades that have been attempted over the past 10 years and really burnt investors, and I think um, there is an argument that this may well happen again, is underweighting the US within a global portfolio. Um, don't trade the US based upon relative valuation is, is certainly something that I would take away from the last 10 years. You know, we've had overweight China, overweight emerging markets, overweight Europe twice, overweight Japan relative to the U.S. based upon valuation arguments. And I think the underlying growth that we've seen within the U.S. market, yes, it's it, it, to a degree, it's based upon the fact that tech is so large within the U.S. market relative to, to other regional markets. But ultimately, you are seeing that structural growth play continuing to outperform as we move forward, in my view. And the likelihood of the U.S. markets continuing their their leading performance of global markets is probably uh, a reasonable place to to argue future positive performance. Thank you. Uh, frustratingly, Ian, I think I'm in all of the ones you just said I shouldn't have been in for the last decade. So that's that's quite. <laughs> uh, Jared, and um, the recession that we're about to be in or are in um, is is relatively unusual in economic history because um, it's not come following a period of rates going up and it's not come during a period where inflation spiked. What does that mean for markets and investors that are in a slightly different kind of uh, recession? Yeah, well, there's been a number of features to this um, shock. It was initially a supply shock, but very much fed through to the demand side. 
But what we've seen in this crisis that's relevant for markets is some of the features already touched on in the conversation, um, namely the policy response has been quite phenomenal. But the most important factor was the speed and the severity of the recession. Um, initially seen in China and East Asia back in January and February, and then in Western Europe and then the States in March and in April. Now, the unlocking of economies, or the lockdown rather, of economies has accounted for the bulk of the downturn. Obviously, one could argue that even without the official implementation of lockdowns, people would naturally or voluntarily have locked down anyway. But the important thing from the market's perspective has been the way the markets initially reacted. But now as the unlocking is taking place, economies are actually able to rebound relatively quickly. And indeed, markets started to discount that. Markets bounced back based on the policy stimulus and then based on the unlocking itself. Now, we are in an interesting situation because we have had a health crisis and an economic crisis. Now, back in the global financial crisis, we had a global financial crisis and a global economic crisis. And it was only truly when both of those were fully over that markets really started to um, factor sort of economic fundamentals back in in the way they previously had done ahead of 2008. We are in an interesting situation where markets are trying to weigh up the consequences of being in a vaccine gap and the consequences of the policy stimulus and the unlocking of the economies. Now, two different features, therefore. In the vaccine camp, I did work with Professor Paul Ormrod at University College London, and so at NetWealth, we released it. And what that shows is that in a vaccine gap, you need three things to be in tr place. You need testing, track and trace, and behaviors need to be different. But while you're in a vaccine gap, you can't see economies fully returning to normal. Many different sectors can't behave as they did before. And naturally, there's also the fear, the risk, maybe exaggerated in some places, of a second wave. So markets can't fully see economies returning back to normal while that vaccine gap phase is there. And thus, we're not truly fully over the health crisis aspect despite all the good news on vaccines. So that health crisis aspect is still there weighing over the markets and may do so until sometime in next year until the vaccine is fully available. In terms of the economic aspects, markets have almost discounted all the good news. Economies are starting to recover. They probably, however, won't recover till pre-crisis levels until maybe next spring in the States, maybe according to the IMF to the end of next year or 2023, in the UK and Western Europe. And as we're seeing from the lessons from post-SARS in East Asia, um, you need after a shock to start to behave differently. This allowed countries in East Asia to prepare better um, after the SARS crisis for a future pandemic or shock, and that left them relatively good speed. I think just to take up maybe another half a minute, the lesson may be from this crisis and the markets is not only what will change, but also what will be the same. I think many of the pre-crisis trends, the fourth industrial revolution, the shift in the balance of power towards China and the States will come back as big influences on the markets. Maybe the big unknown out there is what will change. And is it a case that despite the disinflation and deflation we're currently seeing, is there a risk that inflation might start to creep back in in two or three years time? 
And if it does so, then that will clearly impact market valuations as well. Thank you. Nathan, um, a recession very different to uh, to previous ones as a, an asset allocator, as an investor. How, how do you how do you assess that? How does that feed into your, your process? Yeah, so from from our perspective, uh, the first thing we want to think about is, you know, what kind of recession is this? Uh, and if you look at history, uh, you can obviously break out recessions into three different categories. Uh, so if you think about it, you've got your structural recession, cyclical and event driven. Uh, so structural is usually some kind of imbalance, like a financial bubble. So just think uh, 2007 as an example. Uh, cyclical is usually interest rates going up, um, and that's normally and has been the cause of the last couple of recessions. So central banks tightening interest rates too aggressively. And then the last one we have in this category is uh, event-driven. So this is usually some kind of shock. So if you think about maybe a war or an oil price shock, which then brings on a recession. Um, and if we think about what's happening today, I think that the recession that we have, it's definitely an event. Um, and if you think about the magnitude of this event, instead of it being localized to a country, it's actually global. So we do have to think about it a little bit differently. But if you were to look at each of those individual types of recession, generally you get a different reaction in markets. So for the structural recession, equities tend to fall quite aggressively, uh, on average around 57%, and they normally take a much longer time to recover. Uh, so on average, it takes you know 111 months for the markets to get back up to the levels they were before the recession. Um, and if you look at cyclical, uh, obviously the falls are less and it takes less time to get back up. So 31% fall in equities and 50 months to get back. Whereas event-driven, it's much quicker. And this time around, it was even quicker still. And that's because of that aggressive response in markets. And, you know, there is a lot of optimism baked in with regard to getting back to a normal level of economic recovery. And it's been touched upon already. There are definitely going to be winners and losers as a result of this. Tech is obviously going to benefit. Uh, buying online is going to benefit. But, you know, if you think about any kind of industry which involves, um, you know, consumption on a scale where people are close together, that's obviously going to take a longer time to recover. You know, so cruise lines will take a longer time to recover. Holidays will take a longer time to recover. And so from a portfolio management perspective, you know, this is something that we're aware of. And we want to tilt towards those areas or factors which are likely to be beneficiaries. So if you think about technology, that's a classic example. Uh, whereas if you think about value, obviously value is struggling. So energy companies uh, are struggling at the moment. Um, you know, so that's something that we're quite cognizant of when we're uh, putting our portfolios together at this moment in time. Thank you. Um, Ian, there's going to be winners and, and losers in this different type of recession. Um, what's the market telling us now? Is the market saying it's obvious who's going to win and who's going to lose? Um, or the unusual nature of the recession making that hard to figure out? Well, I think I think the market has has, has taken quite a, a, a quite an aggressive view on the winners and losers when you look at some of the valuations, say of, for instance, Boohoo.com in the UK, and the idea of of kind of at distance uh, purchasing and 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 the impact that this is having on on kind of bricks and mortar retailing. Um, it's pretty obvious that there is a there is a very material trade 
that is embedded in a lot of the prices that we can see right now. Um, I think there is a, well, Gerard and Nathan have made a very good point that, you know, the, the, the idea of an event-driven recession inherently means that there is a huge amount of uncertainty. Uh, it is quite difficult to actually forecast um, accurately the likely outcome for uh, equities in general or specific areas of the equity market that necessarily will be positively or negatively impacted in my in my view. Um, so it's more difficult to gauge, I think, at the moment just because of the fact that we have had quite an unprecedented lockdown of the global economy. We haven't, I don't think any of us have seen anything like this. Um, even 0708, there wasn't, there wasn't this level of kind of grinding to a very quick halt. Um, the, 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 the length of uncertainty and uncertainty in relation to how, how long it takes for the economies to move back. If we just take uh, to one side the idea that, you know, there is likely to be some residual impact on, on how economies work going forward and how, uh, how retail, uh, how travel, other sectors that are inherently impacted right now, how they get back to some semblance of, of normal um, as we move forward, I think is quite difficult to forecast. Um, one of the concerns that I that I have right now, uh, you know, I have said uh, we need to be very cautious in relation to valuation. But you know, if you look at the Nasdaq right now, it's up over ten percent relative to uh, year to date. Um, that's not really, to my mind, pricing in any kind of risk that we have a second spike that we're not able to get this under control globally. That there is other impacts that we maybe haven't quite uh, foreseen as investors. Some of the valuations do look a little bit like they've come back, and 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 there is an assumption that everything will be okay. Um, but I do I, I do are, can see this as being a, a you know a short term. But the problem that we all have is kind of how short term is this? Is this a Q1 Q2? We have a very aggressive contraction, and then we see stabilization Q3, and then and then growth in Q4. Or is this a, a 2021 story before we start to see a real return of, of kind of normalized growth within within global economies? And 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 your guess is as good as mine, to be honest. I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, I do have a PhD in chemistry, but I don't I, I don't really know how this is likely to play out as we move forward. And I think the valuations on a lot of these stocks are basically based upon the idea that it's going to be very short and very reshaped. Thank you. Um, one of the, whatever kind of recession we typically have, one of the features is that obviously people move to more risk-off positions. Um, historically, that has included um, moving out of some emerging market assets. Um, Given the nature of this recession and its its origin, um, do you think investors should look differently at emerging markets, which in many other ways have strong structural growth stories that people are keen on? At the moment, is it is it time to avoid there? You know, I think uh, the answer is yes. I think people should be looking at emerging markets. Um, and there's definitely a couple of things to consider when looking at emerging markets. Uh, so the first thing is country divergence. Uh, so if we think about uh, one of the big themes, it's definitely country selection. So getting your country selection within EM right is very important as we come out of the crisis, because you're going to see decoupling between different countries. Uh, to give you an example, uh, you have different countries will have different abilities to deal with this situation within emerging markets. 
Um, and if you look at the financing abilities of different countries and the appetite to deal with the crisis, um, it's definitely better for countries which are in the north of Asia. So if you think about China, Korea, Taiwan, you know, they have definitely dealt with the pandemic better. And they're obviously much further ahead than the rest of the globe, really, in their normalization, getting back to normal. Uh, and as, as has been mentioned, you know, they um, have dealt with crises before, so are able to operate in this kind of new normal framework much easier. Um, so I think what's important for us is definitely within EM, it's getting that country selection right and then maybe avoiding the countries which have higher debt and lower levels of ability to deal with this crisis. So if you think about India, Brazil, as an example, and you know some countries within EM, they've got a lot of exposure to oil and commodities. So that's going to be a big headwind because the oil price has obviously taken a big hit throughout this episode. But one thing I think which is also a big benefit for EM is the, the composition of the benchmark has definitely changed. So if we look at EM today and we look at the benchmark, about 40 to 45% is now made up of consumer, IT, internet, and only 15% is now commodity or energy. Whereas if you were to look back uh, to 2007, commodities were about 50% of the EM index. So structurally, you know, this change which people have been talking about for a long time, you know, EM becoming, you know, a dominant power and being able to grow uh, bigger and faster than the U.S., as an example, that structural change is happening. And, you know, so you now have a lot more businesses in EM uh, which will benefit from some of the themes that fall out of the COVID crisis. So this is, you know, the usual suspects, technology, online shopping, etc., um, so I think that's quite important. Uh, so I do think that people should view EM differently. And if you look at the price action, so how the equity markets have moved, you know, China has performed quite well throughout this. We've talked about the US and the NASDAQ performing well, but, you know, China has kept up too. Uh, so I think that's something which portfolio managers should definitely note. Thank you. Jared. if I understand correctly, a part of your uh, career was spent working for an emerging markets uh, focused uh, bank um, and you must have seen I suppose quite a lot of change in how the world viewed emerging markets uh, when you were there. Yeah well that's correct. I, how I was... do you think the pandemic um, impacts um, the investment case ahead? Yeah I was head of global research at Standard Chartered for a decade. I'm, I'm still on the board of Bank of China in the UK, so I keep a very close interest in emerging markets and that net wealth. Naturally, we have a global perspective in terms of where we invest. Um, I echoed the point that's just been made. It's very important to look at uh, country-specific factors as well as regional issues, not only from an economic fundamental perspective and market valuations has just been cited, but also the depth and breadth of some of these markets. Uh, they vary considerably, whether one's looking for the local currency bond markets in East Asia or one's looking um, to invest in equities. The, the market characteristics as well as the fundamentals very much come to the fore. What's been interesting, I think, is in the wake of the global financial crisis is that more of global growth has come from emerging market economies. Naturally, I think Nathan touched on this, this has been a global crisis for so emerging markets as well as advanced or Western economies have been hit hard. 
But I, I would say that when we start to come out of this crisis, some of the pre-crisis trends will come back to the fore. And in particular, I would say the shift in the balance of power to what I would call the Indo-Pacific is very evident from India in the West, indeed over to the US, even though it's not an emerging market, obviously in the East. And more of a global growth is going to come from that region of the world, notwithstanding some changes to supply chains in the wake of this crisis. So naturally, one has to factor that in, in terms of that sheer weight impact in terms of markets looking ahead. There is also the frontier markets that come in here. If one looks at sort of global outlook, there's perspiration in terms of people, there's inspiration in terms of the fourth industrial revolution. So on the perspiration fronts, demographics do matter. Now, in Africa's working age population is going to go up by twice that in India or that of India and China's combined in the next 15 years. How will that have a global impact? But how do you factor in frontier markets as well into your play? That might not be the immediate issue, but that eventually becomes an issue later on. India, with one in sort of six of the world's population, um, is likely to become a bigger economy as well. So country-specific factors, yes. Recognizing that emerging economies naturally will have a big influence and therefore should factor in more in investment portfolios. And naturally, China leads the way in terms of all of that. So all of these factors do come in. But as has been cited, these markets are not vulnerable, are not isolated. They're vulnerable like the Western economies are to such global shocks. Thank you. Ian, from a more systematic point of view, I know your, your process is much more math-based than macro-based. Um, how, how do you view emerging markets? How would it fit into to models, etc. now? Well, I mean, I, I completely agree with the the, the, the guys that, that it is it is almost kind of farcical to, to talk about uh, a group of a group of individual countries um, and, and group them as, as emerging markets and they expect some kind of return profile that's, that's similar across these individual individual uh, um, countries and, um, and and industries. I think um, you know fundamentally the the argument for emerging market growth the 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 shifting of, of future global growth from developed into emerging markets is still an obvious trade over the next 15, 20, 25 years. I don't think that's gone away at all. Um, but I did want to kind of just, and, 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 and the, the guys have, have kind of covered that really well, and I, I, I don't necessarily want to add too much. But I did want to kind of pick a little bit for the, the point that you made, that, you know, that the, the, the emerging markets are, are inherently higher volatility and, and hence seen as a little bit riskier than, than developed market trading. And you can see how the impact of a, of a trade, well, even if you've got the kind of long-term dynamics of, of, of movement towards emerging markets from developed, the, the performance of developed markets versus, versus emerging markets, say from around 2012 onwards, a lot of that has got to do with the fact that investors have been buying quality. Uh, and quality trading has been a very an integral part of investing over the past sort of eight to ten years, and and that is a risk in relation to how emerging markets trade. And and, and I, I I use the word emerging markets, and I've just kind of suggested that that's not necessarily the cleverest way of thinking about it. But ultimately, they are seen as a as a, as a higher risk trade, uh, as you pointed out yourself. Um, over the last sort of eight years, we've seen returns or, or, or growth 
that has been in, inherently uh, biased towards um, the US, but also emerging markets, but they haven't really been rewarded. And that's my only real concern. I don't think necessarily we, you have to be certainly very, very, uh, very thoughtful in relation to how you actually um, access emerging markets and where your capital is placed. But I think if it continues to be a market that is dominated by quality in the way that it has been over the past sort of five, six, seven years, then emerging markets may well struggle in relation to their performance, their stock level performance relative to developed markets, even if, even if we we have the the backing of of the idea that Asian Asian countries have seen this type of thing before, they've they've reacted extremely well. The U.S. has been, the U.K. as well, not not brilliant, but the U.S. has been one of the worst performers in relation to that type of uh, performance relative to uh, to COVID. I think where all of the things being equal, I think investors will will come back to the argument: if I want to buy quality, I buy developed markets, and I I, I avoid I buy large cap developed markets, and I avoid some of the emerging market trading. Thank you. Uh, Jared, Nathan, thank you for joining us today on the FT Advisor podcast. Tune in next week for the next edition. Bye-bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.